Good morning. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 32. Genesis chapter 32 will be our passage for the day. And as you're turning there, I wanted to uh, reiterate a welcome to uh, Sarah and Christy. Um, it's nice to have you back, and I am sure that your husbands are most pleased about that. And so welcome back, and uh, we prayed for you while you were gone, and uh, look forward to hearing about uh, the trip. And uh, Sarah, I understand, is under the weather, um, and that happens when you travel uh, like that, and so uh, we'll pray for her as well. Um, also, I wanted to say a big thank you to uh, those who have uh, stepped up in leading worship and uh, been willing to do that for us. Uh, it is a blessing, it is an encouragement, and uh, I'm, uh, for one, I'm very grateful that we have those who are willing to um, lead us in song uh, in preparation for the preaching of God's Word. And now we turn to uh, Genesis chapter 32, and we are going to read starting in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Machanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, as we have lifted our voices in song, as we have pondered you and the truth of this salvation that is ours in Christ and how undeserving of it we sinful men are. As we've lifted our voices and reminded one another of those things, 
So now we pray, Father, that you would lift our hearts, that you would lift our eyes to you. That even as we look at this passage, this magnificent episode in the life of Jacob, that you would show us in the pages of Scripture here the glory of the fact that we can come into your presence in prayer, that we have access to you, that we have promises from you that we can pray back to you, that, that will encourage us when the night is dark, that we have this account of Jacob wrestling with you. May we learn of that. May we learn of that in our own wrestling. Father, we come to this passage with perhaps much on our minds. Maybe in our own lives this past week or maybe this past month has been a very a difficult time as we've faced perhaps personal hardship, we've been threatened with loss. Or perhaps we think about the condition of our world and, and war in, uh, in far-flung places and places that we think of often, perhaps even people who are dear to us. I think of the war in Ukraine and all that's connected with that and how that corner of the world is dear to us. I think of war in Israel and how uh, we see that there has been such atrocity, such hatred and evil that has now brought about uh, full-scale war. And we know there are other places in the world where Christians are being persecuted day in and day out in, in, in such numbers and in such regularity that it doesn't even make the news. It doesn't even show up on our feed. It doesn't strike us as unusual that our brothers and sisters in Christ give their lives daily in parts of the world. Perhaps these are the things that weigh on us. And we do pray that you would work in those situations from our personal ones to the world scale uh, events, to your working in the church around the world, we do pray that you would bring peace, that you would establish justice in those contexts, that you would uh, provide a, a peaceful context in which the gospel can go forth and the kingdom of God can grow and expand, and, and your people don't have to uh, fear, they don't have to live in fear, and uh, the innocent don't have to uh, fear that they're going to be bombed or any of those things. We do pray that you would work and we know that you have the power, that your arm is not short. You have the reach, you have the strength to bring peace in those areas, and we pray that you would. But Father, as we join together with your word open before us this morning, we ask that you would help us in this time to set aside those things that distract us, not so that we can think they are unimportant or so that we can forget about them. We will pick them up later but so that we will have a better understanding of what our response ought to be, and even more importantly, that we will have a better understanding of your might, your sovereign working, uh, even in these kinds of situations. May we understand you better this morning. May we know you personally in a better fashion this morning as a result of our time in your Word. And may we go forth, and as we struggle with those problems, may we do so 
as new people, as changed people, as those who are uh, aware of your work, though we don't see it, aware of your hand, though we can't uh, fathom exactly what you might be doing, yet we can trust that you are doing. And so we pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in our hearts and in our midst in these next few moments. That you would do a special work, even as we look into your word. And so we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage today goes on, and uh, we have a a couple of unusual uh, and exciting episodes that happen here in uh, the life of Jacob in this uh, section of Scripture. We will get to the wrestling match that will come later. We will certainly arrive there, and, and I want you to be thinking about that. And I know that the children are, uh, they have their blast zone, and they, uh, some of them uh, take notes and write, you know, point A, point B, whatever, and others draw pictures of what they're hearing. And we get to the wrestling match, and kids, you, you're going to get to draw some pictures, okay, of, of uh, men wrestling, and so we'll see Uh, how good artwork you can come up with there. But uh, this is a very interesting and memorable and powerful uh, passage of Scripture in this episode in the life of Jacob. And I I want to encourage us before we jump into it that this this passage and this message is for you. I I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you've been through. And there are some who will no doubt listen later and I certainly don't know what they're going through, but this message of this chapter is significant for you. And I hope to be able to show that as we go through it. We are uh, going to try and work all the way through uh, this chapter. And so we start off in, in verse 1, and verses 1 and 2 really, uh, we see there that uh, Jacob goes on his way, and the angels of God met him, period. <laughs> That's almost... You know, and oh, by the way, the sun was shining that day, right? Uh, the angels of God met him. Uh, just, a, just a comment thrown in there, and uh, sometimes Scripture does that. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Machanayim, which means two camps in Hebrew. And so that really is wrapping up the story of Jacob's time with Laban. That's really what's going on. If you remember back to uh, chapter 28 and verse 12, we saw the, the dream that Jacob had. And what was the dream? It was, uh, there was a giant ladder that extended from earth to heaven. And who went up and down on the ladder? The angels of God. Exact same phrase. And here, uh, that's what's going on here. So what's happening is the author is, is announcing the departure of Jacob from the land into uh, a far country. And now he's announcing the return of Jacob into the land from the far country. So it's, uh, it's called uh, bookends or inclusio, that that is helping us to understand that that, that time it, there that uh, with 
uh, with Laban in Haran and all that went on that we looked at, that time has now come to a conclusion, and he's back in the land. He's entered back in, or he's about to enter. He's, he's right on the threshold of entering back into the land. And so Jacob sees these angels, and he says, this is God's camp. He recognizes once again uh, that this, spa- this space, this place is unusual. It is special, and so he gives it a name. And you remember the name that he gave when he was leaving, when he was departing, and he saw in that dream the ladder. Remember what he named it in that place? He said, this is Bethel. This is God's house. Well, now he comes back in and he says, this is God's camp. He's recognizing that he's entering back into a new place. And so we see, uh, we see that Jacob is on his way back. And of course, Jacob coming back, you remember why he left? It's because he, uh, he, he lied, cheated, and steal, uh, stole. And so he made his brother, his twin brother, furious at him, so much so that his brother Esau was threatening to kill him when he saw him again. Now, I've seen some sibling rivalries, and I've been involved in a few of them, some squabbles, and, uh, but Esau means it. He's not just going to be angry at Jacob when he sees him again. He had said he was going to kill him. And so Jacob has probably had that in the back of his mind the whole time he's been in Haran. And so as he's returning, he's coming back in. Of course, he's thinking while I'm getting back into Esau's country. He's been safe uh, at a distance in, uh, with his uncle, if you could call it safe, <laughs> with his uncle there running the show. But he's been gone, and, uh, and now he comes back in. Twenty years have elapsed, and, uh, and so now he's coming back into the land. And of course, he's thinking about Esau, and he, as he does so, he is overcome with fear and distress. So Jacob sends messengers before him to Esau, his brother, verse 3, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. So he's coming back into the territory. He sends messengers ahead to alert his brother that he is coming. And he tells those messengers what to say. Thus you shall say, verse 4, to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. And then he gives them a spiel. And uh, he wants them to say these things to Esau for a particular reason. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I think kind of the meaning of that is I wasn't just running away. I haven't been hiding in, in the area and hoping you wouldn't walk around the corner. I've been gone. I've been with Uncle, Uncle Laban all this time and stayed until now. And, verse 5, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I've come back rich, so I'm not here to steal your stuff, I think is part of the point. I've got all my own stuff. I came back with my own wealth. I have a pile. I have all of these things. I I have come back a very rich man. And so, yes, though I have tricked you uh, before and I have stolen from you and, and all of that, yet I'm coming back and I'm not here to take anything because I've got all that I could ever want. I think that's what he's telling his brother, and he says, he concludes verse 5 there, I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. He's trying to set things up as best he can to have some kind of a, a peaceful union, reunion with his brother. And so he says, he says, look, I haven't just been hiding from you. I, I really did go away, and I've been gone 20 years with Uncle Laban, and now I've come back, and I have my own riches, so I'm not trying to take anything from you. He's setting things up as best as he can. So he sends these servants off. Well, verse 6, they come back. And when they come back, we read in verse 6, the messengers return to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, 
and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. <laughs> I wonder if uh, the words that Jacob sent are going to have their effect. Uh, and Jacob's wondering the same thing. And, okay, my brother's coming to meet me. We, the, the messengers gave the message. Good for them. Good job. He's coming to meet me. Okay, that was part of the plan. Oh, he's got an army with him. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, he's not really at ease at that point. And so we see what he does there. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed from his brother. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the other then the, the camp that is left will escape. So he's, he's dividing his forces, not because he's wanting to go to war, but because he's thinking we're going to be ambushed. And when this ambush happens, at least I want to get away with something. That he won't, he won't overtake me entirely. I'll divide these two camps. He separates them that way. And so in his fear, he's concocting a plan. His brother is coming at him uh, with 400 men. Are, is this just a large welcoming committee? Or is this a raiding party? We don't know. Jacob doesn't know, and so he's planning for the worst, and, and so he divides everything into, into two camps. If you think for a moment about the life of Jacob, his, his life has been one crisis after another. Most of them have been his own doing, right? And I, I can relate to that. Most of the crises I face are my own doing, and that's, that's the case here with Jacob, and, and uh, he, he faces another problem, and he comes up with a plan. We see that he's pretty smart. We see that he can strategize, and, and we've, we've seen how he's even been able to uh, come out on top uh, in regard to relationship with his uncle slash father-in-law and all of that. But it's interesting what we see here is that now Jacob resorts to prayer. This is something new. We've heard him perhaps talk to God a little bit or reference God or swear in the name of God or something like that. But what we come to in this uh, second section here is two things going on. First of all, he prays and he makes preparation. But when we look at the prayer, it is perhaps the most extensive prayer recorded in the book of Genesis. Now, of all the men we've met so far, of all the women we've met so far, and some have been uh, had their moments of godliness and all that stuff, it's probably not Jacob that you would think would be the one who would have the longest prayer, the most extensive prayer in the book of Genesis. And yet here it is. He turns to prayer, which, which is uh, perhaps a sign of something new. And I want us to look at, just, just briefly, and actually I, th- I think we could uh, ponder just this prayer and, and, and glean a lot about how we ought to pray. But look at his prayer. Verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Now, we, we could wish he would say, O my God. O oh, my Lord, God of my father and, and my grandfather and of, of me, but we'll take what we can get. O oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh, Lord, O oh, Yahweh, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I want to recognize before we move on through the remainder of this prayer that he starts off by remembering God's command and promise. That's where he begins his prayer, remembering God's command and God's promise. God had commanded him to return home, and he had promised to be with him. He had promised to do good for him. 
Back in chapter 31 and verse 3, we read about that. And so he begins his prayer, Lord, you have said this, you told me to go, and I've gone, and you've said this is what you will do, and that's how he begins his prayer. He begins by remembering. In verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. So the first R was that he remembered God's command and promise, and secondly is he recognizes God's gracious blessings. I am not worthy, and you have blessed me enormously. How often in prayer do we kind of blow past those things? Yeah, we should say thank you a couple times for a couple of things, and then we move on to something else perhaps. That's not what Jacob does, and it's what, not what we ought to do. He recognizes about himself his own unworthiness and the graciousness of God's abundant blessing upon him. So he begins by remembering God's commands and promises, and he moves on to recognizing his own blessings uh, and how gracious they are that God has given them to them. And thirdly, he makes a request of God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. He makes his request. He requests protection from Esau. Here's this immediate threat. Here's this awful threat. Here's this circumstance that has driven him to prayer. And so having remembered and having recognized, he now requests from God that God would deliver him, that God would protect him. And then he concludes his prayer in verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He reminds God of the promise that he made before at Bethel. He concludes by reminding the Lord again of this promise. He summarizes what he said there, I will do you good and I will multiply your offspring. Lord, that's what you said to me. And so that's how he concludes his prayer. So I think we have a, a good little structure for prayer that, uh, that would be a helpful way for us to walk through prayer in a meaningful fashion. When we're teaching children to pray, it's real easy for children, uh, isn't it, children, to have a memorized prayer. Even though you don't say, here, memorize this prayer, perhaps if you pray the same way day in and day out, they memorize that prayer, and that becomes what prayer is. And here's a helpful way for us all to grow in our own prayer, uh, the structure of Jacob's prayer in this, in this place. But I think there's another point of application here. Do you notice that he started and ended his prayer by remembering God's promises? Remembering God's promises. The fact that God has made a promise does not mean, Christian, that we don't pray for Him to do that thing. God has promised to act in a particular way. That does not mean that the Christian just assumes that, takes that for granted. Well, that's a given. I can just put that in my back pocket. I never need to pray about that thing because God said He would do that thing. That is not the biblical response. That is not the response of uh, believers in the Bible to the promises of God. We, can, uh, we could look at places all, uh, all around Scripture where this is the case. A promise is made, and the Christian responds by praying that God would, in fact, do that thing. 
And that's what happens here with Jacob. He's, he's in a sense reminding God, and in a sense he's reminding himself, these are the promises you made about my offspring, and so that means that Esau cannot come and kill me and all my offspring. Because you said my offspring would be multiplied like the sand of the sea. So God had promised that, that Jacob and all of his people weren't going to die, but what does he pray? That Jacob and all of his people wouldn't die. He prays that God would keep that promise. There is nothing but faith in connection with that. We are, we are remembering, we are holding to the promise that God has made. I think sometimes we are tempted that if God has promised a particular thing or, or if, God, uh, if God knows a particular, of course, God knows all future things, but, uh, but it, it, we, we're afraid that um, maybe we don't have to pray about that thing, that, that God's going to do that thing and, and perhaps uh, we don't need to pray about that. We can just assume that. We can take that as a given, right? We should certainly... Um, continue to pray, even though God has promised that thing. This is one of the problems that, that some people have with the concept of election, that if God knows those He's going to save, why, why pray for God to save those people? He's just going to save those people anyway, right? That's not the pattern of Scripture. God has given a promise. Now, God has not told us who the elect are. He's not told us whom He's going to save. We don't know that. He is, in fact, going to save them. But He gives us the privilege of being involved in prayer for that thing. And here we have a situation where God has already promised Jacob, uh, your offspring are going to be as the sand of the sea. I'm going to be with you to do you good. And the response of Jacob's prayer is, Lord, do me good and, and, and make my offspring as the sand of the sea. So we respond by God's promises to God's promises by praying. So he, he prays, which is amazing. What an encouragement uh, that, that we see Jacob seeming to have grown, right? Well, but he doesn't stop at uh, praying. He moves on to preparation. And I won't, I won't reread 13 through 21, but we see all of the course of preparation that he does there, right? He, he divides all of his, uh, his possessions particularly livestock and whatnot, divides them up into, into different groups, droves, he calls them, and uh, he divides them up, and, and, and they're, they're huge. They're massive uh, uh, groups of animals, flocks, and he sends them on in waves as gifts to his brother so that his brother is coming toward him, and the first thing his brother will encounter is this enormous gift. And then he gives his messenger an explanation. Give this explanation to Esau. And then he sends another wave, a massive gift, with a messenger there to give that message. And on and on, at least four or five of these waves, perhaps even more. And so as Esau is coming, remember Esau and his 400, and we don't know what he's up to, he's going to encounter one of these gifts, and that might soften his heart a little bit. And if that doesn't work, he's going to encounter another one, and that might soften his heart. And on and on. You see, Jacob is uh, trying to make peace with his brother, and so he goes through this uh, this process of dividing up all that he has there. He makes preparation. I think there's a point of application here as well, that uh, though Jacob has not often been a good example to us, he's a good example in this regard, that he prays and he prepares. He prays and he prepares. So, for example, we should certainly pray for uh, the lost, 
and we should be involved in bringing the gospel to them, right? It's not enough just for us to enter into prayer, pray that God would do this thing, and then, and then imagine that somehow God's going to use other people to go and accomplish that thing. Now, God may very well do that, right? But I want to be involved as one of those people potentially in bringing that about. We should pray that the Lord would strengthen the weak among us. And as we are praying, we should also do what we can to come alongside the weak and strengthen them ourselves. It's not enough to pray from a distance and, and wash our hands of it. We pray and then we move in and make preparation. That's what Jacob does here. We should pray that God would encourage and strengthen and mature the body of Christ here at Parkside. Please pray that. I pray that. Please join me in praying that. And as we pray that, what do we do? We get involved and participate to that end. We want to be involved in the Lord bringing that about. And so Jacob prays and he prepares. He sends ahead all of these droves. And what do we see in, uh, in verse 21? The present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp. All right? So he's, he, he's made this preparation. He's, he's sent ahead these gifts. He stays that night in the camp. And so he's left to himself where we see a new chapter, a new section, a new a chapter in his life, as it were, come about where he begins wrestling and clinging. And so we read in verse 22, having done all that work, having sent ahead these droves, having made this preparation, having entered into prayer, and all that he's done the same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. Okay, so he crosses this ford, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So he takes them across. He separates uh, them, and so they're protected. They've been moved across the water. But Jacob was left alone in the beginning of verse 24. He's left alone on his side. So he's got everything positioned, and he retreats, and he's now by himself. And so uh, he's, he's left all alone. And look at verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. What an enigmatic statement. During his time alone, the first sentence of verse 24 says he was alone. The second sentence says he wasn't alone because there was this man there wrestling with him. It's giving, given in in such plain language, no explanation, no introduction of who this man is. He's just there. No introduction of what his motivations are or anything like that. He just occurs. He just pops into this scene. He intrudes on Jacob's solitude and he begins to wrestle with him. You see, who wrestled whom? The man wrestled Jacob, right? Now, my section in my Bible says Jacob wrestles with God. Now, that's not wrong because when one guy starts wrestling, the other's going to wrestle back, okay? So he is wrestling, but this is not initiated by Jacob. It was the man who came and jumped him, initiated the wrestling match with him. He's the instigator. The man is the instigator. And where did he come from? It doesn't say. What does he want? 
We don't know yet. We just know that he showed up. And the, the nonchalant way, the, the bare bones way is, is, that this is presented, that this, this is given to us, is not because the translators did a bad job. And it's not because uh, Moses ran out of ink and so he was trying to explain it in the simplest possible terms. The, the confusion that we get that causes you, you're halfway through verse 25 before you say, what? And you go back and reread 24, is to, is to help us enter into the confusion of Jacob. Jacob was there alone, and suddenly he's wrestling. Somebody, a man, has jumped him, and so the, the author does an excellent job here of causing us to experience that same kind of confusion. And so, how's Jacob going to respond? Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. So, how did Jacob respond? Well, he wrestled back. <laughs> he wasn't quitting, right? He responded. Um, he's not going to give up without a fight. And we've kind of seen that with Jacob. That's part of his character, isn't it? Now, it's gotten him into a lot of trouble. But here we see that he just won't quit. He won't give up. And so, by the time dawn comes... This man has not prevailed against Jacob. And so, verse 25, right in the middle of the verse there, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So they're wrestling. There's no explanation of who this is. And by the way, throughout the whole story, you're, you're trying to look for how it is. Now, we know this is God wrestling with Jacob. And... I, I, I can tell that because I read the little caption in my Bible there, right? And I knew that, right? But where does it tell us? When do we find out? When do we as the readers find out this is God he's wrestling with? More to the point, when does Jacob figure it out? We don't know. It seems like Jacob just got jumped, so he fought back. That's how the whole encounter starts. But then it kind of changes. And, and somewhere along the line, Jacob realizes I'm wrestling God. This is not what I thought it was. I was expecting to be attacked by my brother. I've not been attacked by my brother, not yet. But I have been attacked by this man. I have been jumped by this man. And so, uh, at some point along the way, and it's not real clear where it is, when it is, he figures out it's God who is doing this. And I think, I think that's, that's a part of the way this is told on purpose. Because when do you know God is at work in your life? When do you know that? When can you identify it? Is it on a Sunday morning you wake up and God is going to work in my life today? Or perhaps I've got this thing going on in my life and, and I can tell that is God accomplishing this in my life. Usually, we don't live that way. Sometimes, miraculous things happen. Sometimes, uh, God shows up in ways where everyone kind of looks around and says, well, clearly that was God. <laughs> doing a wonderful thing. That's not where we normally live. We normally kind of live in the darkness and the confusion uh, of, of this situation right here. When did Jacob realize it was God at work? I don't know. When do we realize it's God at work? It doesn't really say in this passage. Now, by the end, he recognizes <laughs> this is God. And by the end, we who are reading it recognize this is God. I think he, Moses tells this story in this way so that we would kind of enter in and feel the confusion. And by the time it comes to the end, realize, yeah, he was wrestling God. When did I realize that? I don't know. I'm not certain. But Jacob, for his part, he's wrestling, and he's not going to give up. He's disoriented, but it doesn't matter. 
He keeps fighting, he keeps fighting, and so much so that, that uh, the man doesn't prevail against Jacob. Think about that. God didn't prevail. That doesn't say God couldn't prevail. That's not the point. God does whatever He wants, right? Our God is in the heaven, heavens. He does all that He pleases. And so it's not that Jacob you know, withstood God in some way. No, but Jacob stayed in the fight. And you can, you know, any dad who's wrestled with his child, you know, knows that the dad could, you know, do whatever with the child. But, but you, you want the child to stay engaged. And so, and so, especially when you're trying to teach tenacity, when you're trying to, you know, teach toughness with it, you'll, you'll keep fighting. And, you, and you're not trying to hurt the child. You could, nor are you trying to just end the fight right now. You could do that. But you kind, of, you're, you're, you kind of invite it and you kind of allow it and you're hoping the child will continue to wrestle and wrestle and, and continue on and grow, grow tough and all those sorts of things. And that seems to be what the Lord is doing here. It's not that the Lord could not prevail against Jacob. It's that He did not prevail against Jacob. And so He gets to the point, there comes a certain time and we know that it's because the, the, the day is about to break. And so having not prevailed against Him, He touches His hip and the hip goes out of socket or stops working in some way. He injures him. He gives him a wound. Now, it doesn't say that he did some fancy judo maneuver and pulled the leg out of socket or some crazy thing like that. It just He touched it and did it. And, and so Jacob is injured, and he's put out of joint as he wrestled with him. The point is he's now incapacitated. He can't continue to wrestle. And so the fight has uh, effectively been brought to a conclusion. The match is over. And then, verse 26, the man said, Let me go, for the day has broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, isn't that, isn't that typical of Jacob? He's been seeking that blessing. He's been, he's been grappling He's been, he's been wrestling for that blessing, for, for supremacy, for that position from the time he came out of the womb. He's been willing to um, talk his brother into selling his inheritance for beans. He's been willing to lie to his blind, aged father to steal the blessing. This is Jacob, but here he is. He's been wrestling all night with this man who is God. And the man incapacitates himself or in, incapacitates Jacob, and Jacob won't give up even then. He keeps clinging to him. So that the man has to ask him, let me go. For the day is broken. Jacob's not going to let go. What, a, what an interesting sight that must have been that, that God himself, God who is a spirit and doesn't have a body like a man, we know that. Yet he can take on physical form. He can appear physically. And this is most likely the Son. I think the Son uh, is the second person of the Trinity is the way that God interacts with humanity. He's, he's the one who appears in so many ways. This would be what we would call a Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This is Christ, no doubt, that he is wrestling with right here. So he's taken on physical form and he's been able to wrestle. And here is Jacob holding to him. Even after Jacob's been incapacitated, he says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. We see 
Jacob's obstinacy turned to tenacity, that he is sticking with it. More on that in a moment. But he uh, wants to be blessed. He, he seeks that blessing. Now, it's interesting that Jacob has been wrestling. There are two things I want us to notice here. Wrestling and clinging. That's, that's what I've called the third point here. The difference between wrestling and clinging. Perhaps there's a fine point. But Jacob was wrestling until he was incapacitated. But that wasn't the end of it, was it? Now he's just clinging. Now he's just holding to him. The man says, let me go. He says, no. He's holding on. He's holding on. He's clinging to him. Verse 27, and the man said to him, what is your name? Jacob's been asked that before. Jacob's been asked about his identity before. Do you remember what he said? Do you remember what he said back in chapter 27, verse 18, when he he brought in the soup, dressed up as his brother, probably artificially lowering his voice to sound like his manlier brother? And the father says, Isaac says, who are you, my son? What did Jacob say? I'm Esau. The man says to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. There's something, we, we, we see him being honest. And if your name was Jacob, if your name was heel grabber, if your name was supplanter, if your name was uh, dirty rotten cheat, and someone said, what's your name? Would you say, well, it's dirty rotten cheat. <laughs> supplanter, heel grabber, trickster. But he does it. It's almost like an admission of his character. Well, I, you know, uh, kind of dirty, rotten cheat. That's kind of my name. Now, if your name's Jacob, you're not a dirty, rotten cheat, okay? <laughs> but his name had particular meaning, and we've seen how it is consistent with his character. Now, what's going on here is there's a, there's a, there's a power uh, dynamic going on. When, when the man asks Jacob his name and Jacob answers, there's, a, there's a, a, a power dynamic going on. Asking someone's name doesn't seem like a big deal, perhaps, in our day, but, but maybe it does. When uh, John Duncan and I were, were classmates at Moody Bible Institute, and he and I were uh, going up to his dorm room and, uh, and as we were waiting for the elevator, uh, Dr. Stoll walks up. Dr. Stoll was the president of the school. And Dr. Stoll is dressed in a nice suit, and he's tall and, and well done. And we're college kids, and, and uh, you know, we're dressed like college kids, <laughs> and nothing impressive about us. And, and we walk up. It, it would not have been strange for him to ask our names. When we got on the elevator together, and he sees that we've got our Bibles with us and that we're memorizing Scripture, it wouldn't have been strange for him to say, so what are your names? What's your name, little boy? What would have been strange would be for us to ask him his name. We knew it. He was in a position of authority. He's the president of the school. It would have been very strange for us to turn to him and ask him his name. You see, there's a power dynamic going on. Now, when two people meet, yeah, no big deal. You ask a name, it's pretty normal. But in that context, where there's such a clear distinction... There's a power dynamic going on here where the man asks Jacob, what is your name? He is asserting a certain authority, a certain position. 
with regard to Jacob. And it's amazing because Jacob answers and says, Jacob, heel grabber, supplanter. And then the man said, verse 28, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. That moment where Jacob owns up to what his name is. You can almost hear the man say, thank you, Jacob, for telling the truth. When you're talking to a child who, who has been persisting in a, in a lie, and they, they just won't, up to this thing, won't own up to this thing, and they finally say, yes, I did it. You say, thank you for being honest. And it's almost like the man speaks that way to Jacob here. But he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You see, Jacob was a striver. He was persistent. He was tenacious. And, and God is changing him in such a way, he's, he's making it known that Jacob, who was the tenacious one in going after his own blessing and his own benefit, regardless of the cost to anyone else, regardless of what evil he had to do to get it, he who was tenacious in pursuing that has, been, has become a new man who is, who is tenacious with God. Here he's wrestled all night long and having been defeated, he still clings to God, won't let go. And we see this tenacity in other ways in his life that God has been changing him. And of course, the change of his name affects the naming of all of the people of Israel. And so that change of name is a blessed thing. God is changing His very character. And in true Jacob fashion, the one who is tenacious, the one who strives, we see verse 29, Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. I'm reminded of uh, Samson's parents and his father Manoah when the angel of the Lord came and, and announced the birth of this baby. Samson is going to come. He's going to deliver his people, prefiguring Christ in a hundred ways. And Manoah asks him, what's your name? What shall I call you? And what does the angel, uh, how, how does he respond? How does he answer? He says, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Seeing that I'm greater than you, seeing that the name I would give you would, would just be a, a, a lisp version of what my name really is because you couldn't comprehend the glory of my actual name. But nevertheless, he blesses him. And so, in conclusion, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Somewhere along the line, exactly what verse, I don't know, Jacob realized, I'm wrestling God and he stuck with it. But when it was all over, with his limp and all, he names the place Peniel because I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And then verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, an alternate spelling of Peniel, limping because of his hip. Now, we've seen the sun set. The sun had set in 2811, again with the inclusio, again entering into that time when he was going to Haran. The sun set in 2811, and thus he had his dream. 
And now he's had his wrestling match with God. He's, he's named the place. That was Bethel when he was on the way out. This is Machaniah. Uh, on, on the way back in. He's named this place because he's encountered the angels, and now he's encountered God. And so he names this place, and the sun rises. You see, the author is, is, is causing this to be a memorable re-entry back into the land. As he comes back into the land of promise, there are new things afoot, a new phase of Jacob's life, a new phase of Israel's life. One commentator said of this section here, because he goes out limping, and verse 32 talks about the fact that, that they wouldn't eat that particular uh, tendon on the hip socket because of this story. And here's what one commentator said in regard to this limp that Jacob went away with, and I think this is profound. The limp is the posture of the saint, walking not in physical strength, but in spiritual strength. God's severe mercy allows Jacob a victory, but it is a crippling victory. Paul expressed a similar truth in another oxymoron. When I am weak, then I am strong. That's the posture of the saint. So in conclusion, our story here as we've looked at this, there's a couple points of application that I want us to make. And you'll see that there is progression to these points of application. First, wrestle with the right one. Wrestle with the right one. Jacob has been struggling and wrestling his whole life. And finally in this chapter, he is engaged in grappling with the right one, the one he should grapple with, God Himself. Not his brother, not his father, not his other circumstance, not his uncle, not his wives. He's engaged in grappling with God. Too often, we try to wrangle our good out of this world or out of other people. Sometimes it's nefarious, and usually I don't think it is nefarious, but nevertheless, we, we try to maneuver a person or a relationship so that we can get what we want out of it. And certainly we saw that with Jacob. We're wrestling that person to get out of them what we want. We try to bend the world to give us what we want. But when we wrestle with God, we are wrestling the right one. You see, He sets us straight. I might be able to trick you. I might be able to manipulate you. I might be able to, to orchestrate this situation such that I come out ahead at your expense. When we come to God, He sets us straight. We will not defeat Him. We are engaged with the right one. When our motives are off, when my motives are off in my relationship with you, I can damage you. When my motives are off with God, what does He do? Of course, I don't damage Him, but He sets them straight. When our values are off, He corrects us and brings us back to where we ought to be. When our timing is off, how often does that happen? 
You pray for the right thing, and the Lord says, not now. And you find that it's years later. You find that it's sometime later. When our timing is off, He fixes our timing. I might muscle you into something. You might force me into something. Maybe it's a good thing, but just the timing was bad. We can't do that with the Lord. God is the right partner for our wrestling. So wrestle with the right one. Engage with Him, and don't be afraid to engage with Him. You will not defeat Him. You will not bring evil about by engaging God, but He will correct you along the way. So don't don't forget to wrestle with the right one. But secondly, don't stop at wrestling. Instead, turn your wrestling with God into clinging to Him. It is a good thing to wrestle with God, but don't stop there. Cling to Him. When you are wrestling with someone, you're trying to subdue that person to your will, to bring him around to your way. What the Lord, with the Lord, what the Christian finds is that the more he wrestles with God, the more God changes the values and the desires and the preferences of the Christian. And as we are changed by being in God's presence, even as we wrestle with him, we find that we are no longer struggling against him. We are clinging to him until he gives us what we need. Clinging to him like Jacob with the busted hip. He couldn't. He couldn't maneuver to wrestle this man down, to try another throw, to, to, to do anything else. He was, he was incapacitated. So what did he do? He just held on to him. And you, you get the picture of Jacob who can't even hold himself up. He's clinging to the man even to stand up. And the man's saying, let me go. <laughs> let me go. And Jacob wouldn't let go. He was clinging to him. That's a picture of faith. That's a picture of faith. When we, when we hold on to God, even though God has not yet done what we want, even though God has told us a thousand times, that's not the right thing to want. When He has corrected us, when He has shown us new things, when he's, and, and we hold on to Him nevertheless, that's faith. That's faith. And so, turn your wrestling with God into clinging to Him as He, as he instructs you, as He, as he doesn't allow you to defeat Him, but He allows you to stay engaged, reshaping you all the while. So cling to Him. Thirdly, don't give up. Don't give up. Here's Jacob, all by himself, gets jumped in the middle of the night by an unknown man and wrestles all night long until the morning. Don't give up. He wouldn't be put off. God finally had to stop him. That's the kind of tenacity we are to have with God. I'm reminded of the parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. The Lord told a parable to the end that they ought always to pray and never give up. Fourthly, if you are wrestling with God, and that God, that, that wrestling is not turning into clinging to Him. The problem may be that you haven't yet been wounded, or more accurately, you don't yet realize that you are wounded. That changed for Jacob when his hip was injured. He had this man as his opponent 
and he was trying to throw, and he was trying to grapple, and he was trying to twist, and he was trying to subdue, and he was trying to fight this man. And suddenly he was wounded, and the fight was over. Some of you still have God as your opponent to be wrestled around to your will. Perhaps in in some ways all of us are like this. But for some of you, you still see God as your opponent. He's opposing you. He's against you. And you are trying to bring Him around to your will. But what you don't realize is that His will is good. And yours may not be. He is righteous and holy. He is all wise. And you and I are small, short-sighted, and tainted with sin to such a degree that if we were able to bring God around to our will would be to make God evil. His will is good. The cause of your inability to cling to God because you continue to wrestle with, with Him, or perhaps your lack of desire to cling to God, may be that you still think that you are healthy and strong. This is the very entry point, and it's the ongoing reality that we need for the Christian, but it's the very entry point into understanding who God really is and who you really are. You must come to understand about yourself that you are wounded, You are incapacitated. The language of the New Testament is dead in your trespasses and sins. You are are incapacitated because your hip has been taken out. You You can't bend God to your will. He is holy, and you are tainted with sin, spiritually dead, And so an effort for the person who is not in Christ, for the person who has not yet realized their woundedness, the effort to wrestle with God is is laughable. And some of you continue to wrestle with God and you don't realize that you're wounded, you're broken. You're in need of someone else. You're in need of a Savior, you're in need of God Himself to hold you up. You're busy trying to throw God down. You're busy trying to wrestle God around to your way. You're busy trying to reshape God into your image or, or, or make Him be in a way that you prefer as opposed to the way Scripture describes Him. You're so busy trying to wrestle God that you're unwilling to realize you need to cling to Him. You need Him. And of course, that brokenness, that limp, I love that picture of Jacob going about the rest of his life limping. It's a picture of you and me. When we realize we have a limp, when we realize our sin will kill us, when we realize that our sin makes us separate from God, separated from Him, and there's no way we ourselves can can wrestle our way to Him, finally, we recognize that we need Him to save us, that we need the Son of God, Jesus to be our Savior, to bring us to Him, that we can be reconciled to Him by faith alone in Christ alone. And so, this picture here, there's a lot in it, and it's a, it's a, a great encouragement, 
but the picture of Jacob clinging to God rather than fighting against him is a beautiful picture of our faith in the Christian life as we submit to him. And may we submit to him. May we be those who realize that we are utterly incapable before God. But in Christ, he holds us to himself. Let's pray. Father, we still have those struggles. We still have those fears in, in life, in the world, in, the, in what's going on around us. We still have those things that we came in here with, but Father, we want to bring them to you. We want to remember your promises. We want to recognize who you are, and we want to cling to you instead of fight against you. And may we come to do that more and more. Hold fast to you because you loved us first, because you hold us fast. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be a family up front to pray with you, uh, and I will be down here uh, as well if someone wants to come, if you have comments, uh, questions for me or whatnot. Uh, Otherwise, God bless you all. Uh, I hope to see you tonight at church at 6 o'clock. You are dismissed.